One of our advisors, Katarina Ritzi from Breather, had said, you know, I know that you think you've built something that's solving a huge problem, and the day you press go, you're just going to be flooded with millions of signups. And she said, that's not going to happen. And please just brace yourself for that, because I think deep down you think that's going to happen. Even after she told us, we were like, the moment we hit go, it's just going to, you know, take off. And, And of course it didn't. Welcome to Montreal Startups, a show where we cover local, innovative, fast-growing companies and the inspiring stories behind them. On today's show, we talk to Ashley Warhan, co-founder and CEO of mentorship made-easy platform, Mentorly. We often hear people say, if only I knew that when I was younger, or ask the question, If you could go back in time and give a piece of advice to a younger you, what would that advice be? Wishing we could draw from past experiences is a pipe dream that comes up time and time again. And that's pretty much where it ends. Sure, we can't go back in time and fix the mistakes we've made, but we could certainly share our industry experiences with those coming up. Yes, I'm essentially talking about the concept of mentorship but not the type of mentorship that your Uncle Frank would offer around the family dinner table because he's a self-proclaimed thought leader in your field. See, not only is that quality advice from industry experts hard to come by, but finding those industry experts that know exactly what you're going through is even harder. And this is especially true if you're an artist. As Ashley would tell you, being on tour traveling the world for professional dance gives you a lot of time to think and reflect. And it was during those periods of reflecting that led to her moment of clarity. This journey as a professional dancer would have been a whole lot easier if I knew then what I know now. And while she realized she couldn't build a time machine, she knew that she could surely help the next generation of rising artists and creatives. Oh, and in case you're not aware of the level of discipline needed to launch a successful dance career, you're about to find out. So I was born in um, Edmonton, Alberta, and I grew up there. Uh, I have a twin brother, an older brother, and my parents are there. Um, And I started, you know, my most major focus early on was dance and gymnastics. Um, You know, as I started to focus really in dance, the hours of the day became more limited. So you expect to leave school at, you know, early at 3 p.m., go to ballet for three hours, go to gymnastics for four more hours, come home study. And so as I got older, um, you know, professional ballet school said you have to choose. So, you know, I ultimately choose to focus on dance. I lived there until I was 17. Um, And then I started my kind of journey into professional training and I moved to Calgary, Alberta to study at the Alberta Ballet School. So you make the long trek from Edmonton to Calgary. What's what's waiting for you in Calgary? Yeah, so I actually was at an international ballet competition in London for the first couple weeks of school, um, and then I moved directly to Calgary um, to... Uh, focus at the Alberta Ballet School. So there you can essentially study half a day and then um, work the the rest of the day at dance. What I did was stack all of my my classes to the first semester so I could graduate early. Um, I was kind of done with high school before it was done with me and I wanted to get a go ahead and get going on my career. So I graduated early mid-year um, and was dancing full-time, uh, you know, at like 17 in a major city with an apartment downtown. It was a lot to navigate in terms of just the basic taking care of yourself, paying your bills, going to high school, going to ballet school, getting home. Um, It kind of thrusted me into a growing up 
phase earlier, I think, than most. I didn't really have a cushion of college to kind of introduce me to a dorm. I was, you know, downtown in an apartment um, faster than most. So how, how long did you spend in Calgary? So just that that one year, and then I moved to San Francisco when I was 18. Oh, okay. Calgary to San Francisco. Yeah. Okay, so you get to San Francisco, another big city, and you're by yourself still at this point. I had been enrolled, actually. I was set to go to college at Purchase University in New York. Um, and then I went to San Francisco for the summer, and I studied under someone uh, named Alonzo King, who was then my mentor, even if he didn't know it. Um, every word he said was like, you know, my truth and why I wanted to be an artist. And I called home and I said, um, Mom, Dad, I'm, I think I'm going to go to this school instead of college. And they said, well, um, you're already enrolled. You know, does this place have a formal program? What is the visa situation? Like all of these details that, you know, a concerned mother would have. And I said, I just have to be here. Like I love working with this person. And I think, you know, he could help me be what I want to be as an artist at 18. And, you know, like I said, well, my mom was also an entrepreneur. And so she had this kind of you know, figure it out as you go, I think, mentality. And she just said, sure, that's great, Ashley. Like, we'll, you know, not not enroll you in college and, and let you go there, which is a huge leap of trust. A lot of parents, especially with artistic kids, are more on the edge of, um, we want you to do something more stable or go to a program that we recognize. And they really trusted me to be able to do that. Um, so that's how I got to San Francisco. And that's super important for you at that point in time to th- that helped propel your career in dance, having this trust coming from your parents. Yeah, I mean, throughout, you know, my mom was really instrumental in just saying, you know, yes, you can do this. Yes, you can have this opportunity. We will figure it out. Um, that's a huge privilege that a lot of people don't have. Um, they don't have the full support of their family, both emotionally and financially. Um, and, you know, she always just said, go and, and we'll figure it out and, and how to finance it or, or how to get you there. Um, from a really young age, she kind of instilled into, instilled into me that there are opportunities also to fund it. So, you know, at 12, she said, well, there's this Alberta grant for artists. Why don't you go ahead and write one? Why don't we film something for you? And it started, you know, to have me think that if I was able to put something together, even when I was 13, maybe I could, you know, get some money to go towards my training. Um, But that was like all through her example. I mean, she had her own company and twins and a five-year-old running around. Um, and so she really has that spirit in her, and I think it translated. Sounds to like she was your, your real mentor. There <laughs> still, still is. What was, your, what was your perception of San Francisco at that time? What did you think of that city? It was a lot going on in San Francisco in 2006. Um, you know, tech was starting to take off, but I wasn't really in the tech mindset at that moment. I remember coming out of the subway and thinking like, how do I even get started here? I don't even have an American bank account. And I looked up and it said Bank of America. I was like, I'm in America, walk in. Like that was literally my mind progression was, okay, now find somewhere to live. Now just, you know, get on the bus. And one go to step school. at a time. Really one step at a time. I really didn't know what was going on in the city at that time in terms of, in terms of tech expansion. Um, but I did see neighborhoods start to change. I did see, you know, a lot of people um, kind of, you know, gravitate towards the valley to live there. Um, so I had an awareness of it, but I, d- I didn't really understand the city at that point from like a tech perspective at all. I was just more concerned with my training. I was super disciplined. People ask me, what's your favorite, you know, restaurant in San Francisco? 
And from that moment, I had no idea because I wasn't going to restaurants or anything. I was really like focusing on my training and trying to get a career going. Um, so I was really kind of in my little artistic bubble there. So how much time did you spend there in San Francisco? So I was there for a year and a half. Um, and then I decided it was time to get a job. Okay. And where was that job? I had no idea. Okay. <laughs> um, yeah, I think as an artist, you kind of just, you know, throw as many arrows out there as you can and, and get hopefully get some back. Um, so mid-year, in my second year, I decided to send all of my stuff home to Edmonton that I couldn't afford to stay there and train and have an audition tour, as we call it. Um, it was just not financially smart. So what I did was I sent all my stuff home and then I said, well, let me just do as many ad auditions as physically possible. So I went to New York. I spent some time there. Then I went to Sweden, the Netherlands, Germany um, for about two to three months. And then I came home and I had nothing. And I didn't know what was going to happen. I, I had this mindset that if you are going to get a job in this area that you've studied for it for 10 years already, it better be this year or next year or else you better figure something else out. Um, and so the pressure was on internally in my mind. And then I got a call from Ballet BC and I had sent them a video months and months and months ago. And they said, can you be here on Monday? And I said, yes. And then I, you know, I got another offer from an American company that I ended up working with. So where was that first job? And what so city was that in? I started in um, with Ballet BC in um, Vancouver, oh, and right. then I moved to Boise, Idaho. Again, sight unseen. I'd been to the city once. Did I see that you went to Boise State University? That was while you were there? Yeah. So our executive director negotiated this deal where Boise State would give us free classes, oh, right. which was amazing. Um, so I started doing university at the same time as working. Um, and again, people thought that's a lot on your plate. How would you ever do that? But from you know my high school days, that's what I was always doing. I always had something after 6 p.m. to do. Um, so I would do that as I toured. I would do you know write papers on the plane, um, and I studied psychology, which was really interesting. So how old are you at this point in Boise State, uh, working, um, studying? There's a lot going on. How old are you at that point? So I was um, in Idaho from the time that I was 19 to 26. Traveling, working. Yeah, so basically with a, a touring company is you're basically in creation mode in the city a few months of the year and the rest you're really on the road touring the world. And it sounds like during this time of travel, you had a lot of time to reflect as well. Is that when these ideas started coming in your head about what you want to do in the next five years? Is that when it started unraveling? Touring is, is funny. It's a combination of like really heightened experience and then a lot of downtime. So you'll have these really high level experiences. Like you could be, you know, in Carnegie Hall one day and then you're flying overseas for nine hours and you're on this this trip and a lot of ideas start percolating. Um, so many side projects come from people being on tour. <laughs> you know, most artists, if they have side projects, they've been envisioned on tour because you have trains and buses. Um, yeah, I started thinking about what I wanted to do. Um, it wasn't really until I moved to Montreal that, you know, the idea of a, of a company or mentally came into my mind. Um, but certainly on these kind of in-between moments was the space where ideas really came, came in. So what brought you to Montreal? So the company, Train McIntyre Project, actually announced that it was closing. I found out in December, and as of July, I wouldn't have a job or a visa to this stay. This is after how long that they've so been? So I was there it's in for six years. Okay, so after six years they announced that. Yeah, 
And so it was kind of shocking. And also I just needed to find another job really quickly. Um, I auditioned all over the place. I would fly out on the weekend and try to find jobs. The difference in that experience was now I'm a little bit more seasoned and people are willing to make calls for me. It was dramatic how much easier that transition was than my getting my first job. Um, and I think that kind of set the, set the stone for, you know, what if we had these champions in our lives at every stage of our growth? Um, how much easier would it be just to bounce ideas off of, um, which now later in my career I, I had. So I, I got an offer from Ballet Jazz Montreal, which is really interesting because I grew up watching them. They would come to Alberta on tour. Um, I remember being in the audience of one of their shows and saying, I, I want to do that. It's not classical, it's not jazz, but it's somewhere in between. I was like 13 and my mom was like, yeah, you could do that, you know, because she believed I could. And, you know, then I got an offer to work for them. So where did you set up shop when you came here? Like, where, where did I move? live? Yeah, where did you live? Yeah, what so part of the city? I, f- I, I was freaking out and I called a friend. I said, I have this contract, but I have nowhere to live. And she said, well, I, I went there for a summer and I lived with this amazing person and maybe she has an extra room. So I remember landing in Montreal. I came straight from tour um, just with a suitcase and I walked into my friend's apartment who I'd never met. And she was like, do you want some wine, gluten-free cupcake? And I was like, okay, this is going to be easier than I thought. This is the right city. Yeah. And uh, so I walked into my room, and I, I honestly didn't even know, like, really location of where Ballet Jazz was because I was starting on Monday. And we we looked up on a Google map, let's find your work. And it was three blocks from where I, wow. where I was. Um, so, you Which know, was where? In, in... So it's on Amherst and Sherbrooke. Okay. Yeah. And so... You know, it was just interesting because, again, I even look back now, you know, uh, four years ago, and I say, would I have done that now? Like, that was pretty risky, right? Just to say, okay, we need you. Here's a contract. And I just flew to the city. You know, I had, I had a life in, in Idaho, and I had a house and, and everything. And I, I just was willing because that's, you know, your true calling. And I think, like, that kind of risk-taking I was inherently taking, which I didn't really realize I was taking at the time. So now you're you're in Montreal, um, you're working, you're traveling back and forth, lots on your plate. But I imagine it's at this time that that mentally be, starts shaping in your head. What did that process look like? I wouldn't say that, you know, it was like, oh, let's create this solution for the world. Let's create a company at all. It was, you know, after it's never f- like that. It's never like that. Um, yeah. So I think after being here for a few years um, and being on tour, you know, ideas started to form. It certainly wasn't here's the solution for the world I want to build. Let's build a company. Um, I had, you know, met my co-founder the first night I was here. That same day that I was offered kind of like gluten-free cupcakes and wine, she had said, uh, let's go to this party tonight and you can meet some people. Um, it's the warmest introduction I've ever had to a city and and I'm still really good friends with wow. her. <laughs> yeah. And I'd met Catherine there, mentally uh, COO and co-founder. And and we just hit it off. Um, we started talking about film and art and different, you know, parts of Montreal. And she was just super kind. Um, we ended up making a dance film together, later doing some artistic collaboration. So she was also in dance at that point? So she's a filmmaker. She had okay. a production oh, company a for eight years. And yeah, she's a filmmaker. So she had that artistic background as well. Yeah. yeah. And um, and so I was on tour and I came back from a tour and I remember getting so many questions in all these inboxes, my Instagram inbox and the other category of your Facebook where you don't know the person and about the next audition that was happening for Ballet Jazz. And and I didn't know any of these people. And I, I really didn't feel like I could give really good advice. Like, I didn't know what their level was. I didn't know if they'd be a good fit for the company. I didn't want to say, yeah, you should just come audition. Like, that's not 
really personalized advice at all. And I came back and I was having um, I was having lunch with um, Catherine's old uh, partner at her production company, and he was like, "You know what? Catherine's actually looking for a mentor in film, and she can't find one. You know, you guys should talk." Um, so we started talking, and we discovered that this was an issue across all industries, um, and that we should, you know, do something to solve it. So what is Mentorly? Tell me about the platform, how it works for, for both the mentor and the mentee. Sure. So Mentorly is a platform where we have world-renowned artists, creatives, and innovators um, that create profiles and they become mentors on the platform. They're vetted by us and then approved. Once they're approved, um, you know, mentees can come online and book a one-on-one video call with them all through Mentorly. Um, they pay for the session and then the mentor gets paid as well. And of course, mentee, um, Mentorly then takes a cut. Does the um, the so the mentor sets his fee and the mentee pays hourly for that session? How does that how does the pricing work? Yeah, so we have three prices: uh, forty five, seventy five, and one fifty USD. And we tier the mentors according to experience, um, mentoring experience, and then recognition and demand. And then for our B two B clients, um, all the sessions happen for free. So essentially, they have a version of Mentorly internally for their company, organization, um, or university, and they have all of their mentorship. Um, relationships happen free of charge and then we can come back and say this is what happened this was the data on it this was the feedback these are the jumps that the mentees are taking in their career now the the environment the university or um company has all of these statistics and data to really analyze how is their mentorship program evolving, what's going well, what's not going well, and how can we shift it it also then allows them to scale it to as many people as they want to have involved how do you address the challenge of uh, the mentor-mentor relationship being taking place offline uh, on the second one because isn't that uh, couldn't someone do that just on the next session just take it offline and do it via Skype or something? Being on Mentorly ensures that they have the security of our platform in terms of payment and booking. Um, we do have you know a mentor contract. Of course, we have all the legality opening. Essentially, our job though is to make the experience so excellent and amazing and helpful to the mentor that they never want to take their mentees off platform. You can have people sign as much terms and agreements as you want, and they're still going to find a way around the platform to take it offline. Um, but this way, they have ability to manage all of their mentees in one place, and they have a lot of trust for us. We've actually never had that happen so far, um, but it is a challenge that we're always thinking about and, and kind of ready to address. You guys are... are non-technical at this point did you did you immediately um assume that a, there's a technical solution for this or did you have other ideas of how you could get to market quicker with with a solution for this problem yeah so we were you know pretty naive um as non-technical co-founders in terms of what it took um of course you know in that day and age we're like well let's make an app and we quickly got sat down and got told that that's not how you build something and that you have to consider all of these things before. Um, yeah, and we we brainstormed a lot of different solutions, you know, like is this an in-person thing? Um, is this a technical thing? Like how do we solve this problem? And we came down to two things was that, you know, one, the connections that 
are meant to be made are really global. And for that, we're going to need something that, um, you know, expands over borders. Uh, you know, having communities within your city is super important. But for really big opportunities in your career, a lot of the times it takes someone with a different perspective from a different market. Um, so how, how could we build a solution to solve that? And then also, how can we bridge this gap between people that probably should know each other and will never connect in real life? Um, you know, if you are going to film school, for instance, your professor is probably not the right person to talk about distribution to a bunch of different American film festivals, right? They haven't been in that position for a really long time, if ever. And so how did we get the people that are experts and are really kind of working today with the people that are emerging or are maybe mid-career and just need some guidance? So how do we best solve that? And the solution, you know, clearly was a technical solution, the way that people were interacting with the world, the immediacy that people expect right now in terms of solving problems for themselves and getting support. Um, it's really something that we hadn't seen at all. And so that's when the ideas of, of a web app came along. It sounds like it's it's more of a logistical um, issue that you're tackling in terms of not just matching people, but making sure the two people that you're matching, the mentor and the mentee, are the right matches for each other, right? Because there's there's so many different possibilities out there. So how, how did you ensure that that's, the match is going to be a quality match between the two people? You know, right now, what we do, we actually just offer them the personal choice to choose. Um, how we deliver that information is having a very clear profile of the person, of, you know, their background, what they're willing to help with. Um, that's kind of a hurdle that a lot of mentor-mentee relationships will pause on, is that maybe someone is not willing to offer all of their connections in their Rolodex although we don't have Rolodexes anymore. We need a new updated tech term for that. Still the right term. Yeah, <laughs> um, but maybe they want to offer guidance on branding. And where mentee and mentor relationships can kind of get, you know, can clash is that if someone expects something of another and they're not sure what they're willing to offer. Um, and so what we do is that we give the mentees a very clear profile of what the mentor is willing to offer, where their expertise lies, um, and then we have them you know, hop on a session. Um, we don't guarantee that every match is going to be your lifelong mentor, but what we have seen is that um, you know, so many of them after their first session are so overwhelmed with the information they have that they have to rebook because, you know, they can't tackle everything in an hour. So we're seeing that, you know, we haven't had one person really come back and say, like, that wasn't beneficial for me yet, which is very surprising. And it shows that the market is just super underserved, you know, like they deserved the solution a long time ago and now they're finally seeing it. Okay, so th this is the part that I find particularly intriguing. Uh, you and your co-founder, Catherine, you identify this problem. You know that there's a, there's a need for this. Um, you come up with a solution that looks like a web app. Um, but you know, you're, you're two non-technical founders in the city of Montreal. This is where I'm like, okay, where do you get started with this? How do you even know what to do next? Early on, Catherine had some great connections in terms of just getting some advice around product build. Um, you know, we sat down with um, Anthony Land, and he had said, "Okay, how are you identifying the problem? What is the solution? And you know, you're going to need someone to build this." Um, you know, as naive as we were, we did like postings for a CTO, and if we could find someone to just hop on this idea and build it right away, um, that's what we would love. And the search was, you know, I would say non-successful. So. 
at that point, because we didn't have any funding either, um, we decided, well, we need to get this out into the market as soon as possible because people are going to come into the space. Um, you know, we are sure that people were going to identify it as well. So we decided to make our MVP with an agency here in Montreal. Um, you know, I think we interviewed six or seven and a lot of them came back with very high price points and very limited offers for adjustments or upkeep. And it seemed like it was just going to suck all of our money right at once. Um, and then we found an agency that we felt fit um, us and uh, they were really excited about diving into like a double-sided marketplace. They had never made one before. Um, they were excited to build it with us. And so we spent the greater part of six months with them building. Um, and we did a lot of the initial work ourselves, you know, wireframe by wireframe. I had a friend that was a UX designer in Portland and I said, you know, could you help me make a, a user journey map? So I had to Google user journey. Like I didn't know these terms before I knew them, right? And so we made those together, Catherine and I, and, and then we presented them to the team and they worked on them to kind of build them into fruition. Um, Catherine has a really strong design mind um, and kind of visual aspecting of what a brand for artists should look like. Um, you know, when people come to Mentorly, they see something that was built for them. And I think that was because it was designed by artists. And so we had to really guide the agency to make what we wanted. And I remember one moment where we came in and they had the first version of Mentorly and we just sat down and our faces dropped. And it just didn't look anything like we envisioned. And so we had to go away and say, okay, we either have to do a full redesign or we, you know, we clearly failed at communicating what we wanted. And I even, I remember saying, but I said, you know, light and bright. And then I, I went to my computer and I just looked up designer terms. And when I say those words, a designer also hears something totally different because they're hearing, you know, something to do with a different part of their creation process. So, you know, on my end, it was a big learning curve to say, well, maybe you're not communicating in the right language, which overarchingly has been a big learning hurdle, you know, in communicating with developers or different marketers or, you know. And so we came back and we said, listen, this this doesn't look anything like what we want to put out into the world. And they were really open and we did a full redesign and they, you know, they didn't really charge extra for it. And they just said, we want to get at something where you're comfortable with it and where your customers will be comfortable with it. But I remember that moment of just thinking like, oh goodness, like we're doing this all wrong. The bones of it were correct. The UX, the, you know, how it was working was perfect. It was just the feeling, um, but feeling matters a lot. Hey everyone, just a quick word from our sponsor, Breather. Breather's mission is to empower companies with private workspace that helps them meet their full potential. Growing rapidly, Breather has a network of over 400 workspaces across 10 global markets available on demand for hours, days, or months at a time with no membership or subscription fee. Visit breather.com to learn more. I just want to go back to you deciding to work with this agency because I find this very interesting. It, it happens a lot where non-technical people come up with an idea and they're so passionate about it and they don't they don't know where to start because 
it's hard to find a technical co-founder. They're very much in demand and it's hard to go to one and say, hey, do you want to come work for us for free? We have this idea and expect them to be as passionate about it as you are. So you guys tried that option, didn't work, and then you decide to go with an agency. What was it about this agency that made you feel comfortable that they were the right people to execute this project for you? And what did the arrangement look like that, that that made it so easy to jump into this relationship? Because, you know, a lot of the times you're building a, a tech startup, you need a technical person on board long term. So is it worthwhile offloading a lot of your capital initially into this development? And then what was the next step for you in your mind for maintenance and stuff going forward? You know, if you can have a technical co-founder, please have one. <laughs> it would have been much, you know, easier for our growth. But at that point, we didn't have one, and and we had, uh, you know, a little bit of money to to make a product, and that was the only option we we saw. And our our really biggest focus was to getting it out there and seeing how people responded. Um, you know, again, we didn't spend 150 grand on an MVP. Um, you know, we spent an amount that we felt could could scale with with our user base as, as a usable product. Um, but it was really important just for us to get it out there. And so that's why we made that decision. You know, I think what stood out about this agency was that they were open to working with us as the product changed and maybe we would need some maintenance after it launched. Um, they were really starting to grow as an agency, so they weren't like a huge, big machine. Um, they were, you know, a team of five. They had a dedicated um, project manager to us who we really got along with, and they had, um, you know, great design and developers on both ends. And so it was kind of like a one-stop shop to have all of those team members. To build the team externally is, of course, without any funding, any revenue is, is impossible. And so for us, it was, it was a good solution for that time being. Um, we did a lot of work with our market before we even started that. You know, we did a lot of surveys, data collection, figuring out what people wanted in a product. You know, were mentors, did they expect to get paid? Did they want to do this for free? Would people pay for it? a lot of talking to our market prior to building. So we had very clear ideas going in and very clear kind of hypotheses of, you know, this is what we expect to work and now we need at least a minimum product to see if it does. The first version wasn't what you guys expected. It was a little bit of a letdown. They, they were nice enough to go back and reiterate that with you. Is, is that second version what we see now on, on Mentorly? It is. The base of it is. Um, of course, there's a lot of additions. You know, there's search features, there are different design aspects, um, usability aspects. Um, but that is kind of, you know, the base of what we're working on right now. Tell me about launch day. They deliver the the final product or at least what, it's not final, it's your MVP, but it's at least comfortable enough for you guys to say, okay, let's go to market with this. What was your strategy? What what day of the year was that? And, and what did that look like? What was your plan of attack? Yeah, so they launched it um, kind of without our official launch strategy going on so that we could test it and everything like that. Um, you know, one of our advisors, Katarina Ritzi from Breather, had said, you know, I know that you think you've built something that's solving a huge problem and the day you press go, you're just going to be flooded with millions of signups. And she said, that's not going to happen. And please just brace yourself for that. Because I think deep down you think that's going to happen. Even after she told us, we were like, the moment we hit go, it's just going to, you know, take off. And 
And of course it didn't. Um, you know, our strategy around it was we really had already, you know, 200 mentors ready to onboard. Um, we're building a double-sided marketplace, so you can't make it public and have no value offering. Um, so we had them all ready to go to sign up and create their profiles. We had some partners that were going to do announcements with us. Um, we did a whole bunch of press around press day. Um, a lot of it was Montreal based and some of it was more global. Um, so all of that leading up to it was kind of launch day. Um, we launched on um, June 12, 2017. Uh, we did a party at uh, Catherine's apartment with our advisors and a few friends and our tech team um, to kind of hit go. You know, we demoed it for them. I was in the other room doing a mentorly call um, and it was, we thought it was, you know, this huge step and then looking back, it was just like the really the start of, that was the, beginning. That was the start of the work. Yeah, making the MVP was not the work, that was the start. What's more difficult after after launch than going forward? What's what do you find more challenging at that point? Finding mentors or finding mentees? Finding mentees, I guess, would be the biggest challenge then um, of educating them that this product is for them. This is a new way of interacting with their community. Um, they don't currently have maybe a lot of tech tools for them. Um, and the way we did that was really leverage all of the mentors' networks. Um, you know, so it's it's a. Uh, it's a growth effect that every mentor has, you know, giant followings. We had Catherine McCormick join and do a little Instagram post, and then all of a sudden we got 100 signups. Um, if a mentor has a large following, the moment they say, hey, I'm on Mentorly and I'm going to help you one-on-one, -on -one, people come. Um, so that was initial kind of our growth strategy to get people to the marketplace without any marketing or press or anything like that. It was really you leveraging the networks of all of these incredible, you know, mentors. What what is your approach at this point? What, what's your your acquisition strategy for finding these mentors and mentees? What are you you mentioned that you had two hundred already when you when you launched? Where are they coming from? How are they finding you? How are you finding them? So for the first hurdle was getting them from you know essentially a spreadsheet to make them have full profiles and be engaged. Um, because we had two hundred to agree, it didn't mean that two hundred onboarded. Um, there's a drop off in that, and so the first hurdle was to get them onboarded and to create um, you know a marketing strategy and um, messaging around why you should meet with these people. What is our brand voice going to be, and how do we deliver them then to the masses? And then we figured out really early on that, you know, a lot of like global press, like CBC, um, that kind of press was actually not serving us so well for consumer acquisition. It was more um, a niche press approach that was successful. Um, and so from there, we started targeting more niche press that had to do with that individual's journey. So if I'm... Blogs. And yeah, blogs. Um, or if I'm a filmmaker, what do I read? What Twitter accounts do I follow? Um, how can we get involved with all of these kind of avenues to find where they are? You know, essentially... When a community really needs a product, they already kind of create it with their own community, even if they don't have it. So we would see giant photography groups on Facebook that are thousands of people. Um, and we would create polls and say, you know, do you have a mentor on this journey? And some would say yes, and some would say no. And the overwhelming majority would say, no, but I don't know where to look for one. I'd love one. You know, and you have hundreds of people that click that box. So you see that the need is there. And so it's just how do you extract those users and bring them to your product? You were working with an agency to build the, the platform. How did you transition 
out of that and and then did you realize at one point like this is going to be too costly to to be paying an agency for that we need a CTO so how how did that work it became an economic decision you know it was really hard to pay per hour per contract for upkeep um, software breaks and that's what it does and you need someone there um, that is not only committed to the platform but committed to the company as a whole and you need someone to be thinking about product constantly and kind of in the obsessive way that we're always thinking about mentally and what's going on with it um, and so it became really clear that we needed to transition away and we started bringing on freelance developers um, that was you know really challenging at times because people had full-time jobs and they were doing work in the evening. Also, to have them dive into a stack that they'd never seen before. Um, and as non-technical co-founders, we had to you know, get help from our advisors to say, how qualified is this individual? How good is their code? So we would have people review their code and better understand um, you know, who's equipped for this position and why. So we spent quite a, a while with different you know, freelance developers that were kind of helping us maintain what was going on. And then we found the developer that is um, you know, leading Mentorly today. And it was just a really great fit for both his skill set and then culturally. What's your favorite place to find freelance developers? online or offline? Yeah, so we, we put a bunch of ads out kind of the traditional way to do that. And then, um, you know, we got in a pickle once where we needed someone to transition a lot of the backend stuff. Um, and we couldn't find anyone. You know, a lot of the Ruby developers right now are, you know, at major companies in Montreal. It feels like if they're experts in one of the languages that these major companies use, they're kind of sucked up there. And so um, what happened which was really positive was I'm in the Slack channel of uh, Montreal Women in Tech. And I just had a coffee with one of the CTOs there just to get to know her. And I remember her, I was complaining, it's oh, so hard to find Ruby developers. And she was like, that's because I have them all. <laughs> and I was, I was like, well, good for you. And then when we got in that little like pickle situation where we needed someone for like, you know, a few weeks to help us with a problem, um, I just called her and said like, do you have anyone that could help us? She said, absolutely. Um, and I know, you know, it's so embedded into entrepreneurs to make connections and just make friends in the city. But those are the kind of moments that really saved us. And it was because I'd gone to a coffee with her to help us get that connection. I want to talk about financing a little bit because at this point you've, um, you know, you've built an MVP uh, even with a couple of reiterations on it. You've gone to market, you have press, you um, are launching marketing initiatives. How are you financing at this point? Is it all bootstrapped? It is, yeah. We did a little kind of friends and family money at first just to get the product to market um, and invested our very hard earned money. Um, you know, there's this like whole other level of responsibility you feel when, you know, you were an artist for 10 years and those savings are literally everything that you've worked so hard for and you want to put it towards this product. It's just another level of responsibility. So that's what we did. Um, a lot of our marketing initiatives were zero cost. <laughs> you know, they were featuring mentors, they were getting them to talk about it. We were seeing reach that, that brands would spend thousands of dollars to get. Um, we did invest in a PR person to kind of get us a few interviews to to launch the product, which was had a great return. Um, but, you know, more of it was learning how to make those opportunities happen for free. And a lot of them happen naturally if you're connected. So, um, you know, I had a great person from media talk to me about how you get press for products and why it has to be timely. You know, the conversation around female founders or tech launches are not news to anyone. Why does it, you know, why does it interest press's um, 
their audience and why does their community need to know about it? So you have to formulate these stories within your company and then you deliver them directly to those you know, contacts to say this is something you might be interested in. Again, that's a lot of just um, relationship building and less, you know, I'd love to throw you 10 grand and do this marketing play. It's more like I'm building a relationship with you. Now you trust me as a resource and now you'll mention me in all your, all your articles. So it's that two-way trust that you need to build to get press. There's two different ideologies on on raising money from friends and family. There's the people that feel very, very strongly against it just because of the position that puts themselves in. And then there's the people that actually recommend raising money from friends and family because of what you mentioned with your own money. You know, it's the same with friends and family's money. It adds an extra kind of fire underneath you to to, to grow. So what would be your, having done it now, having gone through the, the process of raising money from friends and family, what's your suggestion to others as an alternative? Yeah, I mean, I think a friends and family kind of raise is, a, again, it's a privilege. A lot of people are not in the position to ask the people in their community for money. Um, they're taking the risk themselves. So, you know, first of all, I would say that's something that we were very lucky to be able to do. Um, you know, for us, it's, it's a responsibility to give their money back to them, of course, and get them returns, but also they, they knew that it was a long-term play and that this was going to be a long process to get their, their funds returned. Um, but they saw the value in us. And, and, and like in any fundraising, they saw us. They didn't necessarily see the, the idea. They saw the market that was really interested and then they believed in, in how we could to lead it. But, you know, I think funding is really personal in terms of, of what you need and when. Um, there's a lot of resources in Montreal that we had access to and were very fortunate to get, like Montreal Inc., to get 10K from there to kind of help patch together some some funding. Um, and you just have to be scrappy early on, you know? Um, but again, like the conversation of, you know, reach out to your contacts and raise 20 grand. A lot of people, that's not their contact pool. And if it is, their journey is going to be very different. And I think that's why you know, more initiatives need to be brought into the surface for people that don't have that opportunity to do it. So m- most of the the mentors and the mentees are on the platform for a creative perspective, right? But I do see there's also a few in, in tech and a few in marketing. Is that the future of the platform? Is it to expand across all disciplines or is it always to stay in, the, I guess, you know, there's there's creativity in marketing and, and tech as well, But but where do you see that going? Yeah, so we have a focus on industries that are innovative and uh, that are emerging and evolving. Um, and so, you know, one of the the main reasons we have people in business is that a lot of creatives are really underserved in that part of their career. Um, you know, an artist needs just as much knowledge in marketing and distribution if they don't have an agency doing it for them as a a business person does. Um, so providing that kind of link between the two worlds was really important to us. But we are seeing, you know, we've started to build our tech category. We've started to build just a pure, you know, business side of it. And we're seeing some traction in that area. Um, what we're really conscious of is not going after every industry too early. I think that just leads to failure if you're spreading yourself out too thin. So our goal is to really conquer, you know, and, and develop a tool that is is needed and, you know, widely used of a large market share of the creative environment and then move on to, you know, other industries. But that's really going to evolve as, as mentally evolves. Um, we also serve B2B clients. So that's another whole aspect of mentally and, and how we reach people. In terms of, of financing going forward, how do you see the company um, raising capital? Do you see the company raising capital? And 
what are the challenges of raising capital in the city of Montreal being a, being a tech company founded in Montreal? We're actually in the middle of raising a, a seed round right now. So the answer is yes, we're raising. Um, you know, the challenge being in Montreal, I think, is just the amount of investors here and, and that we're not necessarily um, embedded in that community yet. Um, from the f- from the early days of Mentorly, we started meeting investors, even if it was just to pass our idea by them. Even if they said, that's too hard, it will never work, you know, good luck. Like, it was a great way to just to understand what do investors look for, what are their minds working like, where, you know, what are they expecting of companies? And so, you know, the the advice a lot of people give is just that you're always fundraising whether you know it or not. Whether you're fundraising and will get a check or you're fundraising and they'll be able to refer you to someone else for a partnership, whatever that is. Like from the early days, we were getting to know the community through different events. You know, there was Startup Fest, who we ended up actually working with last year on Art Up Fest. Um, got to know a lot of investors there um, just at events and, and in different ways in Montreal. It's it's hard because there's not as many funds, but at the same time, it feels manageable to know people because it's not so overwhelming. So it's kind of like a double-edged, um, you know, would I have the confidence to walk to, to all those people in San Francisco? Now I would, but in the early days, I'm not sure. Um, so we're, we're raising right now. Um, you know, we're lucky to have some, um, you know, we, we've had revenue since day one. You know, every session brings in revenue. Every B2B contract brings in revenue. Um, and so for investors to see that is super promising. Um, you know, we're not in a phase where we build out a product, don't know how to monetize, and then work backwards. That's not our strategy. Um, we really believe in month-over-month growth. Um, so that's where we are in terms of, of building. Um, your question mentioned growing slowly. That's certainly not where we are. We're focused on you know, producing really quality exchanges, but at the same time producing those to a mass amount of people. Um, if we wanted to do this for a small market, we would have built a different product. This really has the ability to scale, um, to have repeatable sessions, to support people long-term on their journey, and to include people from all over the world. Right now, we have users from 17 countries worldwide uh, within our first year, so our growth is um, pretty exciting. Okay, so if I ask you the cliche question about what it's like being a female founder, the standard answer should be, I'm not a female founder, I'm just a founder. And I get that because women don't want to be identified as women tech. They're just in tech like everyone else. But I want to touch on the subject not to glorify the sexism on being a female founder, but more to shed light on the challenges you face being a female founder. So what challenges have you experienced personally? I've, you know, I think... You know, there are the things that happen sometimes in your day-to-day that kind of keep you, it, it makes you gasp. You know, I've been asked like, oh, are you an internet mentally? And, you know, whether that's because I look young, <laughs> no, I'm just flattering myself, but um, I don't know whether that was because of, I don't know what their unbias or their bias was to me in that moment. But those kind of things happen all the time. And, uh, you know, when you're dancing, you get asked like, when are you going to get a real job, um, you know, how much do you eat every day? These like outlandish questions and you just have to know like that's not about you. It's about the person and their perspective of you and maybe all the things that they're bringing to that question and you can answer that however you want. And so when I encounter bias maybe in the tech space um, as being a female founder, you know, that's really coming off of their their perspective and it has nothing to do with my ability to move forward and, and for Catherine and I to build this, this company, um, you know, the greatest, I think, compliment is just that our user base feels like the product is built for them. And whether that comes from an artistic perspective, a Montreal perspective, all of these things that have made us who we are, that's what has brought the product to where it is today. Do you, do you have specific 
stories you could draw on or, or recall that you found that being a, a woman in this industry has uh, posed a challenge? I think just the number of people of your gender um, or identifying as your gender in the room is the biggest thing. Was you know walking into some big um, events mainly and seeing like just a sea of suits. And not women in suits, because women can rock suits, but just like a really big sea of that and not feeling like they're men, I'm a woman or, you know, um, vice versa, but more of like, I don't, I don't have that intro that they, maybe I'll know them from a corporate environment even. It's, it wasn't even, you know, necessarily the difference in sexes as if I'm not in your corporate world or I'm not in your funding world and how do I literally break into that circle? I remember standing around a circle of, of men just, you know, kind of talking about whatever. And I just wanted to kind of like say, hey, you know, I have this company and it was a funding event, but I I didn't know how to like break in. And so I, j I somehow did, I don't remember how, but like that kind of, you know, and so it's coming from two angles. Like I'm not, I don't have a background in tech or in funding or in the corporate world, but how do you kind of like break that in? And And it's interesting because once you get there, what you think is is different about you is the thing they remember most. It's the thing that they're like, oh, this person's different than I am. How cool that you were an artist for 10 years on tour. I'll remember that. I remember negotiating a, a partnership or just a call actually to explore a partnership. And I was so kind of, you know, hesitant to, to spring up my background. And then we got into it and the woman on the other end who's running a huge major nonprofit was like, oh, I was actually you know, dancing professionally in school. Where did you train? And then we bonded on that and then we rolled on it. And so it was what made me more different that I wasn't willing to bring up. And once we did, me and this woman had this incredible conversation about purpose, you know, and we connected. If I were to come back from the future and tell you Mentorly is a huge success five years from now, what does that success look like to you? The journey of Mentorly from now until five years ago is to really just serve people on a global scale. Um, to have people connected to those that they look up to. Um, you know, we're seeing this huge, huge wave of e-learning and personalized learning and, and supporting people on their paths in their careers. Um, and so we never want to feel like someone doesn't have the opportunity to, to find a mentor that they need to, to, you know, make their dreams happen. And, you know, I think that mentally will be involved in people's lifelong journeys, whether they're building a career as a, an 18 year old or they're transitioning later in life, mentally will be that third line to where they connect and where they feel supported. Whether they interact with mentally, um, you know, as part of a university or in their corporate environment or on our B2C side of it, you know, mentally will be the instigator for their growth, the instigator for them to take bigger risks and maybe build companies of their own or careers that they never imagined possible. Ashley Warren, co-founder and CEO of Mentorly. To discover more startup founders and companies in Montreal, visit montrealstartups.ca. 